In today's episode, I sat down with Mike Brown from Isara to talk about something related to quantum computing, but not exactly quantum computing. Isara works on quantum safe security, one of the few companies to start doing this, so they're watching the field of quantum computing closely and starting to help companies make sure that their data is safe for when quantum computers are able to crack today's common forms of encryption. When, not if. Uh, Mike talks about it much more elegantly than I can, so let's get on with it. Take it away, me from the past. All right, welcome to today's episode of Quantum Computing Now. I have with me Mike Brown, who's the CTO at Isera Corporation. Um, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Ethan. Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, of course. So um, Isera is a cybersecurity uh, corporation, but we're going to get into that later. Before we do that, can you talk a bit about your background um, and how you got into both the cybersecurity side and then the quantum computing side? Yeah, well, so as a kid, I was always fascinated by codes and secret codes and reading books where you're talking about, you know, spies and things like that. And, and I also always was really into mathematics. And so as I started to look at universities, then I figured that'd be a great time to try to spend some time learning more about that. And being here in, in uh, southern Ontario, we're, we're, we're lucky to have the University of Waterloo, which is very well known in the world of cryptography. A lot of the great research in elliptic curve cryptography came out of UW. So um, I had the opportunity to go to UW, studied mathematics and computer science, and really focus on cryptography then. Um, after that, um, you know, I, one of the things that UW is great for is having a co-op program. So as a student, you get that chance to try to try before you buy different jobs out there. Um, and I ended up um, joining BlackBerry during that time. This was, of course, sort of the heyday for BlackBerry um, uh, during the, the 2000s, early 2010s. Um, and actually, while I was there, started in software and then had the opportunity to help kind of grow a product security organization there. So really looking at how does security impact the user's ability to use mobility? And this was in enterprises, governments all around the world. Um, now, um, as I got to the end of that journey, one of the things that Waterloo is also known for, um, in addition to cryptography, is quantum computing. You know, there's the Institute for Quantum Computing, there's the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, all based in the Waterloo area. And so there's that great confluence of both that crypto and quantum space. And so um, uh, my partner, Scott Totsky, and myself, who we'd worked together at BlackBerry, um, decided to um, start a company focusing on, well, how do companies start to do this transition? And we'll get into a little bit of getting ready for what quantum computing brings to them from a cybersecurity point of view. So uh, you know, it's really that, that confluence of having all of those great opportunities around uh, where I grew up academically and being able to take advantage of, of what's there. Very cool. And uh, uh, talking about University of Waterloo, um, I like to mention cool opportunities to people on the podcast um, or people listening, I should say. And I believe they have a like a summer school for quantum cryptography. Is that Are you involved with that or do you know about it? So I know a number of the professors who are are engaged as part of that then. You know, it, one of the things that um, um, I think draws a lot of people into the field of quantum computing is that it's so interdisciplinary. You know, you're, it's not just computer science from the point of view I'm learning Python and things like that. You're really bringing in the pure science, um, bringing in things like chemistry, you're bringing in physics, computer science, engineering, um, mathematics, um, algorithm design, all these together into one field then. And 
so um the, you know the university of waterloo is great for having those types of workshops they do everything from as you mentioned summer schools on on quantum cryptography and quantum security um also things like um training high school teachers um, to make sure that they know how to start talking about quantum computing in the classroom, to start getting students even earlier on in university sort of excited and into that then. And um, University of Waterloo, both through IQC and through Perimeter Institute, um, do a lot of work in the Waterloo area, and of course now virtually uh, with the pandemic, um, in terms of helping um, just overall science education get out there into the community. And so we're really lucky to have all that around us. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier with this uh, this transition to quantum cryptography or uh, I guess quantum secure cryptography. That's actually the first question I want to ask is, uh, is ICERA focused on like protecting people from quantum attacks or transitioning people to like quantum key distribution? I know there's sort of this duality. Where does ICERA fall into that? Yeah, and so there's this the the yin and yang of math and physics uh, in this space, and and I, I'll put a spoiler alert to say that my background's mathematics, so I kind of skew to the side of the math um, part of the world. But you're right when we thinking when we think about what quantum computers can do, um, they create a threat to the existing cryptography that we use on the internet and IT organizations all around the world. Um, and you can solve it in, in two ways: you can use physics with quantum key distribution. Um, or and you can use mathematics with um, quantum safe cryptography um, and what we see is that those two sort of fit together very well in some cases and in some cases they solve the same problem in different ways we focus um, exclusively on the mathematics side of things helping companies understand how do they fit the new math into their products that they build into their it networks then but of course we also work with companies who are building qkd products out there such as companies like say um, ide quantique in um, switzerland for example interesting yeah, and so this is this is talking about like you've said uh, fitting this these new mathematical models into things that they've already built or updating new products, and it makes me wonder like a lot of the the standards for like web interfaces are open, um, and I don't know how do you see that that interplay between like private and then these more open standards when you're looking at this enterprise software. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that you know so many of the if you think about all the tools that you have in an enterprise network, um, almost all of them are reliant on open standards in terms of how they work. Then you know everything from if you imagine like the uh, the famous like the OSI stack for uh, computer networking. All of those different layers are defined by different standards out there. Um, some of the most famous would be things like the IETF, um, the Internet Engineering Task Force, and they're responsible for defining how does HTTP work? How does TLS work? So when I get the little green lock icon in my web browser, uh, how exactly does the protocols under the cover? Um, and cryptography is an essential part of all that because cryptography, while being all about mathematics, is really a language that we agree upon. So that if I have a Juniper router um, and it is talking to a Cisco router, the two pieces, even though they're from different companies, can actually talk to each other in an interoperable way then. And the standards are an essential part of that. Now, what you're getting at, though, is that cryptography, which we've been very successful in making um, you know, very much ubiquitous across um, everything from the Bluetooth headsets that many people are using to interact with Zoom calls these days, uh, to the GPS um, connections that we have in our car, um, to even software 
being downloaded to vehicles that we have, all of those rely on cryptography. And standards are used to define how that works. And so when we're thinking about transitions that have to take place, the impact is enormous. You know, if we, uh, it's almost like retooling uh, in, in Canada here, we have uh, uh, something called Robertson screws, um, which are the square head screws. And, you know, a lot of people say in the States are used to Phillips head. So the little star on them there, you know, it's imagined redefining all our blueprints to use a new type of screw. It's hmm. huge, the impact that takes place. Yeah. And I guess much like screws in the real world, cryptography is, is everywhere. Um, but it's it's sort of there at different levels, um, and something that came to mind as you're talking about this between like, you know, there's there's a difference between car receiving a security update, even if it's like you know a self-driving car, um, which a malicious security update could be very very bad, or like your Bluetooth headset. Um, and I guess yeah, maybe I I don't know if this would go anywhere, but are there do you have to take into account these different levels? of um, security needed when you're looking at trans transitioning people to potential quantum threats? Yeah, absolutely. You have to think about the risk um, that you can occur. Um, and it's both from the um, uh, the risk that a breach of your product could cause, you know, what's the harm that it could cause, but also to the value associated with the information that's there. Because, um, you know, one of the ways to think about um, uh, how you protect yourself is to imagine how much would it cost someone to attack you and how much is your information worth? And if there's a crossover point in there, you know, if it, if it, if, if it's going to cost a billion dollars to access your information and your information's worth a hundred dollars, that's, that's clearly um, an asymmetric worry. So you're not, you're not concerned about that at all. If you flip it, it's going to cost a hundred dollars to access a billion dollars worth of information. That's an area you need to focus on. And so we spend a lot of time actually with customers, helping them understand how do they start to do what I'd consider like an archeological expedition across their IT networks um, or across their product designs and figure out, well, where do you start? Like, what do you need to look at first? And what's the most important thing? You know, if you think about a bank, for example, you know, we have um, all of us have credit cards. If I, have a, if I make a credit card transaction, that information gets settled at the end of the month. You know, in some sense, it's ephemeral. It kind of goes away once I've paid my bill, uh, hopefully at the end of the month. Um, but um, so the value for that is relatively small. And it's also time limited in terms of their, um, how long it needs to be protected for. But then you think about the clearinghouse that happens for banks where, you know, Wells Fargo has billions and sometimes trillions of dollars going through their networks every day on the back end. Well, that's an area where we need to prioritize um, our efforts then. And, and all organizations need to do this, not just against quantum, but just against threats in general. It's figuring out what is the most risky area. And so where do I spend the most amount of my budget to make sure that I'm safe? Yeah. And uh, it's interesting talking about this, like some of these things are ephemeral. Some of these things last longer, right? Like my, my Bluetooth connection, um, it's sending that data uh, that I'm listening to, you know, latest Justin Bieber song um, back and forth one time it's not gonna stick around um, but yeah then there are these these longer term things and it sounds like you've got to take into account how long that data will last um, as well as how valuable it is yeah it, uh, most definitely if you think about um, you know in uh, in the EU we have um, things like uh, GDPR 
um, which are all about how do I protect the privacy associated with um, an individual user. And you're right, length of time is so important. Um, if you think about medical records, they generally are lasting the lifetime of the user, which is hopefully 80 plus years um, there. So that's a, a long period of time. Um, you also have information which might need to be protected for um, a project basis. Um, if you think about a federal budget, the federal budget is the most secret thing within the government until the day it's tabled. And once it's tabled, it's published. It's in every newspaper around the world. And so um, we're not worried about secrecy at that point then. So there's a time-limited nature of it there. So we have these sort of um, short-term strategic secrets there. So you know, it, it, this is a fascinating area of thinking about how do we actually do this type of um, uh, not just risk mitigation, but sort of risk scoring of understanding kind of what what is riskiest, where do I need to spend my money, and where do I need to think about things? And it, it changes for every organization out there. So as you look at this this time frame of how long these things are going to last, um, and you know, you, we give the two examples of like Bluetooth or like you said, medical records, but there are, right. I guess, there are some things in the middle, right, that maybe last like five years. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess the question is, like, what do you see as the, the timeline for quantum computing? Are there things that could potentially be cracked within five years and people going, well, my stuff doesn't need to last the whole lifetime um, might might still be be compromised at some point? Yeah. Um, so when we talk to researchers out there around, you know, what's the progress in quantum computers? And and for our perspective, what we really care about is um, what's sometimes called a, quant a cryptographically relevant quantum computer. So that's meaning a quantum computer which is big enough to solve problems which are relevant to commercial cryptography. You know, the, the numbers that we hear are everything from 7 to 10 or 15 years. So that's the ballpark from a planning purposes then. Um, in, in the U.S., NIST has been very public in saying 2030, sort of the time frame that they're looking at for quantum computers that could break um, things like, say, um, RSA 2048, for example. Um, and then it, you can go you know, everywhere kind of on both sides of that equation around where where people think it is. But I think 2030 is a pretty safe one from a planning perspective. Um, and, and what's a, an interesting aspect of this is that, you know, what we think about, there's a risk element in terms of how long do I need to have something protected for. There's also the element of how long is it going to take me to actually update my system? So example I always like are, are cars. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's three big things which are affecting vehicles today. So number one is electrification. So moving away from gas um, to um, electric-based cars. Number two is autonomy, um, the, the, all the drive around self-driving cars. Um, and, and number three is over-the-air software updates. And the industry is moving to fully over-the-air software updates because they're looking at about $33 billion in savings every year. Wow. Because of things like the fact that half of all recalls for vehicles are software related. So if I'm an automaker, I'm spending money for you to take your car in to the dealership to have someone apply effectively a software patch, and then you drive home. This is expensive, time consuming, and no one enjoys it then. So there's a very big um, uh, money savings element. Now, let's imagine a vehicle that's going to be on the road in 2035. So this is past when we think quantum computers can um, break commercial crypto. That vehicle is on average going to be, um, have been on the road for uh, 10 to 15 years. So I think the, the standard date is like 11 and a half years. So the vehicle in 2035, it actually came onto the road in the early 2020s. Now, a vehicle takes about six to eight years to go from conception to being roadworthy uh, at that point then. So you know that vehicle then in 2035 actually started its development cycle a few years ago. So 
that over-the-air software update, if I have a quantum computer that can break, say, RSA, then that means that I could subvert that over-the-air software update channel. And so vehicles then, which I'm working on today, I need to actually start thinking about today how I'm going to build in those protections. So that's a case where the threat doesn't exist yet, but the planning needs to be there. And we see this in a lot of industries where you have things like um, uh, long-term um, uh, IoT devices. Um, I live in a very flat, windy area. So we have windmills for power generation all around. It is If you think about how to do a software update for a windmill, it involves someone with a parachute on their back. That is not an easy thing to do. And so again, these types of devices, um, uh, where you're based um, with Boeing, uh, not uh, not too far away, they're thinking about um, engine and turbines that'll have a 40-year duty cycle. And those are hardcore IoT platforms with data pouring out of them, software running uh, in bare metal on, on the actual turbine itself then. So these are all areas that we see a lot of movement today around getting ready for this threat because of the time scales that they need to worry. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point because, you know, I... I often don't think of like, you know, jet engines as something that's an IoT device, but it increasingly it, it is. And people need to think about the fact that, uh, yeah, you, you talk about this uh, 15 plus year, like sort of, I guess, lead time to having a car that can potentially be corrupted. I would assume that airplanes and jet engines are longer than that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, as part of this, you know, a Ford F-150, the stats from about two or three years ago, they had about 140 million lines of code um, wow. inside the vehicle then. Um, you know, that's an order of magnitude more than the, like the F-30, um, F-35. So, you know, there is an entire, there is an enormous amount of code surface there um, that we need to be considering then, in addition to just the pure crypto threat. You know, I, I'm kind of lucky I get to focus on one specific threat there. But, you know, these platforms, uh, especially in vehicles, are, are something that um, uh, they need to spend a lot of time in thinking about how to harden them as much as possible. Okay, interesting. And so maybe we could take one of these examples, uh, take your mm -hmm. pick, like Bluetooth headphones, yep. truck, uh, wind turbines, whatever, and walk me through what a quantum attack on that system might look like. Yeah. So um, let, let's pick about the, so the, the Bluetooth headset one, let's set that one aside because um, th that is very much in, in a lot of ways a disposable technology where, um, you know, while you do do, um, this is a wired headset that I'm pointing at, um, but while you do do a um, public key exchange, when you connect your Bluetooth headset to your phone or to your laptop or whatever, um, you know, there, odds are is that you'll probably have swapped that headset a few times over the years. Well, let's think about um, a vehicle um, for a second. When we go to manufacture a vehicle, they have these things called ECUs, or the electronic control units, which are basically the motherboards um, inside the, the vehicle then. Um, a modern car may have hundreds of ECUs, everything from the powertrain system to braking subsystem to um, uh, the infotainment unit um, that you're interacting with. There's a ton of these all over the place. All of those are running software inside of them. And at manufacture time, there's actually a public key which is burned into um, uh, either the chipset um, there or maybe into uh, an EEPROM or something inside that ECU then. And the purpose of that public key then is when software is loaded into the ECU, there's a signature on that. That signature mm -hmm. is created by the manufacturer. Um, that could be the actual, say, car uh, manufacturer. It could be a subcontractor like a, a Bosch or someone else like that. Um, 
and the public key in that ECU is responsible for verifying that there has been no tampering that took place with that software that's loaded. So then we imagine five or six years later, cars on the road, um, hopefully pulled over on the side of the road, it gets a software update um, over the air. What, what happens gets downloaded to the car itself. Then the ECU then verifies um, that signature. Then if it passes, it updates the operating system. So now you can see the scenario. If I have a quantum computer that can actually break commercial cryptography, then what I can do is I can take that public key, which of course needs to be accessible in some ways then because I'm verifying code, um, and I can retrieve the private key associated with it because I can use Shor's algorithm to break that cryptography then. Um, and now I can modify the operating system and then create a new valid digital signature on top of it and send it off to the device. This is how, if you uh, have seen any of the more recent Fast and Furious movies, you see you know, the uh, protagonist or the antagonist taking over a bank of cars to try to attack someone then. It's by able to run that type of attack where you put your own operating system on those vehicles then. Obviously that one's a wee bit overboard then, but this is sort of the scenario. You use the quantum computer to break the cryptography. Then you can um, pretend to be the auto manufacturer put your own software on that vehicle, um, and then you have control in some ways then. Huh. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, and in order to in order to counter this, uh, I kind of want to go back to this like lead time that we were talking about earlier. Yep. Um, and I think that there's there's another section of the lead time that maybe you, you talked about that I missed, but it's almost like the decision lead time of like, mm. okay, we need to decide to make this quantum secure. So that takes however many years or months of proposals and approvals. Yep. Um, and I, I think that maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is this feels like what Sarah talks a lot about, which is cryptographic agility. Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, you're a bit spot on. So the idea, idea of cryptographic agility is basically being able to change, to be ready for whatever threats are affecting your cryptography. And this means different things depending on who you're talking to. If I'm the designer of a product, cryptographic agility refers to how difficult or how easy is it for me to swap in and out cryptography that I'm using within my product. If I'm a CIO, um, it could speak to how, how easy is it to configure the products I have to change the cryptography that they're using then. You know, if we, I, I'll give you a nice example of when I use my web browser, I'm on Chrome right now. When Chrome is connecting into the podcast server, what it's doing, uh, in, among other things there, is actually negotiating the cryptography that we use for protecting that, that connection then. And that's because TLS is agile in terms of how it's been designed to enable you to make some of those changes. If I'm thinking about um, a product itself then, um, that needs to be built in to how um, the product is designed. Um, and you know, coming back to your example with the question there, if I'm the product designer, there's a stage where I'm probably going to say, well, I want to be able to add quantum protections, but maybe I want to also have protections against existing algorithms as well too. And I'm, I'm in this sort of weird, mushy period in between fully classical, not quite fully quantum safe yet. And this is what we see a lot of um, uh, customers interested in this idea of hybrid protections. The idea of hybrid is, well, let's actually do both the classical solution, so the RSA signature, um, and then also doing a quantum safe option, such as a stateful hash-based signature or um, uh, some of the other candidates like dilithium, which is lattice-based then. Do both of them, and as long as one of them 
um, is still protective, then your system is safe as a whole then. And we see this happening both from an authentication perspective and also from the confidentiality of, um, there's this idea of an attack called harvest and decrypt, where I send information on the internet today that's encrypted, someone um, copies that off the internet, which we know nation states are doing, so that they can um, uh, decrypt it later on when they have access to something like a quantum computer. So a way to protect that today is to, well, encrypt as you normally would today, but then also protect it with a quantum safe um, candidate right now using hybrid cryptography. And so this kind of, if I'm that protocol designer, that allows me to kind of hedge my bets uh, in some ways then to say, well, I'm going to keep using the protections I know already today, and I'll add in this extra protection from quantum security as all the standards sort of settle over time. Interesting. And so I think I've seen something similar to this um, because I use KeePass for my uh, yep. like password management. Mm -hmm. And when I create a new KeePass database, it asks like, what sort of encryption do you want? And you can have options. I, I won't give away what I actually use, but it, <laughs> I believe the default is something like um, AES and uh, TwoFish. And it like right. encrypts with AES first and then takes whatever jumble you get out of that, and then encrypts it with a second layer. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. You can think of it from a clothing terms as uh, wearing a belt and suspenders. You know, if your <laughs> belt suddenly fails, at least your suspenders are still there to protect you. And, you know, this type of, um, um, again, the, the technical terminology is hybrid, but this idea of mixing those two systems together so that you get a best of both worlds, um, we see as being a very good risk mitigation strategy um, that even, um, uh, you know, folks like NIST um, are recommending as the uh, method to move forward again in this interim period. Because while we are developing quantum computers um, currently, we're also developing all those standards, which I mentioned before, and we haven't settled on all the final um, choices that we're going to make there. So um, depending on the risk that you're under, this is a good time to say, well, let's choose some of the leading candidates, use them in a hybrid uh, mode. And through agility, that means that when we get to the point where we have the final standards, then we can swap out and switch to those final standards then. But in the meantime, we still have protections for the things that are most important. And the reason that you'd want to swap out for those final standards, my, my, my guess would be that like doing two layers of encryption is it's intent, uh, cost, costly, uh, computationally intensive. And so if you can just do one, that's better. Yeah, it, it, certainly having the most efficient way is, is always the best for a lot of products. Um, another one is um, you may be in a, a regulated industry where in order to sell to certain customers, you have to abide by certain rules. If you want to sell to the uh, U.S. federal government, for example, you need to make sure that you're abiding by the FIPS 140 program uh, for your cryptography. And so when the final standards have been um, finalized, um, you'll need to make sure that you're using uh, cryptography, which is validated against the whatever the new version of FIPS 140 will be at that time. And similar standards exist all around the world. Okay, very interesting. Um, yeah, and kind of want to jump back to these different examples that you've given across, like you said that headphones exposable, or sorry, disposable example. Um, but is there is there maybe something coming from quantum computing that's uh, like it's a big deal. We all we always hear about um, RSA. Everyone knows about that one. Um, but maybe is there something that people aren't really looking at, or it's not on people's radar that people should maybe be a little bit concerned about? Yeah. So, so as I said before, my background is mathematics. So you know, I, I always look on in awe to all the work going into from the physics perspective around quantum computers. Um, so you know, I see a lot of work where there's the some of the gaps around how are we going to scale up. 
um, the uh, quantum infrastructures that we're looking at and the architectures we're looking at right now. But from a computer science point of view, the area where I think there's a big gap in terms of the amount of study is really in the quantum algorithm space. If we think about, you know, what are the building blocks we're going to have for interacting with a quantum computing infrastructure? We've got, of course, the physics. We need the hardware, um, computer engineering, electrical engineering of designing what our qubit structure is going to be, how we communicate between qubits, how do we um, uh, do all of the electronics um, up the stack then. Um, but then we start getting into the realm of compilers, and then we get into um, uh, you know uh, things like you know Microsoft's um, uh, interface for actually programming quantum computers, and the work that say Amazon is doing to try to coalesce a lot of this together across different architectures. Then, but if I'm a um, an algorithm designer, I don't have many building blocks that I can use if I'm trying to create new algorithms. Then, really, we've only got what, four or five fundamental quantum algorithms, even Shor's algorithm, which is famous for being the one that breaks RSA and elliptic curves, that's built on Simon's period finding algorithm under the covers then. You know, you've got um, things like Grover's algorithm, but there's not very many of those fundamental building blocks. And so, you know, one, this is an extremely hard area. So <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not um, saying that there isn't the effort there, but this seems like an area where a lot more study is needed then because this is where some more of the breakthroughs can come through. Like we've got our kind of our, our, our basic tools in our toolbox right now out of quantum algorithms there. And um, there's an enormous amount of work in terms of things like how do I use those to solve problems? Like, you know, Microsoft doing wonderful work in uh, quantum chemistry and thinking about ways to actually come up with fertilizers in a more efficient manner. Um, like that, that's amazing. Um, not just because we do a lot of gardening, but just because from a, a food production around the world, that's extremely important. But the more tools, so the more quantum algorithm building blocks that we have as an industry, then the more cool problems we'll be able to use quantum computers to solve. Very interesting. And so putting, putting the developers aside, people who are actually going to make the big changes, um, and corporations like, uh, Isera, uh, work mm -hmm. with other companies, um, let's look at like Joe Schmo listening to the podcast wants to keep his KeePass database uh, secure. Um, is there anything that individuals should or even can do today uh, in regards to keeping their data quantum secure? Yeah, the biggest thing that you can do is keep all of your patches up to date. Um, you know, if we're if, if I'm an individual, um, the reality is most individuals don't interact with cryptography. Um, uh, directly. They interact with it in an enormous number of ways throughout their day, um, but they're not actually touching it um, at all during the day then. So for you, the best thing that you can do as an individual is make sure your systems are up to date. Always make sure Microsoft Auto Update is set, that um, uh, your Mac operating system is updated so that when all of these threats come out there above and beyond just quantum computers, you know that the um, IT companies are going to be building in those protections to protect you. Um, I, I think that's the best thing. Even if you're an organization, that's still also one of the best things that you can do. Because even when I talk to um, a bank, for example, they don't do cryptography themselves very often. Um, they get their cryptography through their Microsoft Exchange system that they have deployed in Office 365, through their um, uh, Cisco um, VPN and firewall, um, through all of these pieces that they buy. So it's through their partners um, that they get those solutions already then. So as an individual, you just make sure as long as you're keeping things up to date, then you're going to have the protections um, that you need coming through automatically. 
Okay, so you mentioned Mac users and Windows users. What about us, Linux, uh, Linux gang? Uh, as you know, it is current year, and therefore it is year of the Linux desktop. So, uh... <laughs> yes, you're in the the same uh, environment. Then you know, make sure that you keep all of your kernel changes up to date. Um, then, because you want to make sure that you have the the latest and greatest um, there. Um, you know, the other thing around all of this here is that you know there there is just basic good hygiene that you should always be doing as a um, as a, a computer user. Um, and you know, I, I'm always um, I don't like saying computer now because this is just as equivalent on a tablet or on a phone or your car or your TV. Um, I, I'm a big fan of trying to minimize your risks as much as possible. So if you have your um, TV. Um, if it's an Android TV, for example, make sure it's getting patches going to it then. Um, also, make sure you turn off every service that you don't use <laughs> on your TV then. The number of TVs that are listening automatically, even if you maybe don't want to take advantage of those features, is very important. So I, I'm a big believer in a lot of those hygiene things that you should be doing for all of your IT systems, even if they don't look like a traditional, say, tower, a computer tower in your environment. Awesome. Awesome. It's, uh, this has been... Uh... Really, really informative, and I, I want to push you a little bit outside of your your cybersecurity comfort zone. Ask you some quantum computing specific questions for our last ones sure. here. Uh, first one is: What do you see as the biggest problem in quantum computing? Yeah, again, I, I think I would um, go back to my algorithms uh, comment. Then I, I think the the number of people around the world who are studying computer algorithms um, is extremely small. Um, especially uh, uh, if you look at proportionate to the number of uh, people who are studying uh, uh, qubit uh, architectures out there. You know, there's enormous effort going out there between ion traps versus silicon versus um, superconducting qubits, um, all of that work out there. Um, you know, there's a huge number. And you know what? As a mathematician, I get it. There's a lot of cool physics going on there, a lot of cool lasers, um, keeping things near absolute zero. Um, but algorithms, that's a hard area that we need to be studying a lot more. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then what do you see as the biggest promise in quantum computing, we'll say over the next five to 10 years? So I think it's in the drug design. Uh, world. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we're, if we think about the treatments that we have going out there right now, especially in things like, say, cancer, um, for example, um, we seem to have gotten through a lot of the low hanging fruit in terms of the, um, for this particular variant of cancer, here's a specific drug that you can take, which will help the vast majority of people then. Um, now we're starting to get into more of the, the really that notice that we need more targeted therapies for individuals and the ability to use the power of a quantum computer in order to um, uh, actually design medications for your specific genome, um, I, I think is um, is such a wonderful um, thing that we, uh, we should be working as hard as we can to take advantage of. Awesome. That, those are uh, definitely... Um... Say more applied than I get from a lot of the uh, very theory <laughs> focused people on the podcast, but it's it's great to get that new perspective. Um, so yeah, where can people find out more about you, what you're working on, Isara, all that good stuff? Yeah, so um, Isara.com, we're a website for everything. Um, Isara Corp on Twitter, um, so you can find us there. Um, those are probably the best places. LinkedIn as well too, since we're a company um, there. A lot of my stuff you'll see through um, uh, those places there. Um, also uh, Forbes Tele uh, Forbes uh, Technology Council. Um, also trying to put articles out there as well too. So um, we try to get our information out as many places we can. Um, I also speak at a lot of conferences um, as well too. So um, if you're 
if we're ever out in a conference in the real world one day, um, I look forward to chatting with people. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Ethan, for having me. Um, This has been great. All right. So no one reached out to me with any questions or corrections, which frankly, I'm disappointed in because according to my analytics, um, hundreds of people listened to that episode and no one called me out on the fact that at the end, I said that I would play this anchor voice message from someone that I had gotten and then I just didn't play it. There's like a pause and then I keep talking because I totally forgot to edit that in. Uh, that's on me. That's my bad. I have updated that episode. So if you go back and you listen to the last like uh, two minutes, uh, that that is in there. Um, it's a really nice message. And if people want to leave me more of those messages or actually call out me or my guests for uh, things that are wrong in the past, I will absolutely make a correction here at this in this section of a future podcast. So you can reach out to me on Minds. Um, email or anchor voice message. Those are the those are the preferred modes of communication. Uh, you can find me on Minds at One Ethan Hansen. My email address is One Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com. And Anchor, you have to download the app and then go to my profile and send a voice message. Okay, so for further resources for today's episode, I actually want to point to something that's not really related to what Mike and I talked about. Um, it's IBM's new report that they've put out called The Quantum Decade. I've got a link to it in the show notes if you if you want to check it out. I highly recommend giving at least some of it a read. Uh, honestly, it's a bit repetitive. They sort of hit the same points over and over and over and over and over again because uh, it's it's marketing material. You got to do that in marketing. But it's it's still got really good information about IBM um, and what IBM's partners see coming up in the next in what they're calling the quantum decade. I think that they're saying the the 2020s is the quantum decade, which from what I'm hearing, like next 10 years, uh, well, I guess eight and a half now that this is June of 21. But yeah, this this decade is uh, what people are expecting to be. Which we're going to start seeing lots of advancements and lots of actual quantum advantage in this decade, which I, I think that that's a good time frame. So yeah, uh, make sure you go check that out. Also, of course, all of the things that Mike and I talked about are in, linked in the show notes. I believe in the episode, I said that there was um, one summer school that University of Waterloo puts on about quantum safe encryption, um, but there's actually two. There's one about quantum key distribution and then another one that's specifically for younger students. So I've got links to both of those in the show notes. And yeah, with that, uh, I'd like to say that if you would like to support me so I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes, or you can send me some crypto. I've got addresses in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it. <laughs>